Good morning. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this this day that you've set apart for us, that we might worship you, we might draw near to you, we might hear from you, hear your word. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would be poured out among us today, that we would be equipped, that we would be convicted and reminded of your glorious power and your glorious grace. Lord, thank you for drawing us into this space now. Give us ears to hear. Speak, O Lord, we pray. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine that it's 1941. It's at at the, the height of the invasion of Nazi Germany going out across Europe. And I want you to imagine that there is um, a British paratrooper who's part of the special ops. And he's, he's flown in secretly over France as Nazi Germany is invading. And this paratrooper is, is dropped out of the airplane by himself and he, and, he, and he comes down, he floats down in his parachute and he lands in an open field gathers up his parachute and begins to go out into the villages nearby. And as he goes into the villages, he's seeking to find people who are willing to resist the invading forces. And he begins one by one, family by family, person by person, community by community, setting up pockets of resistance against the enemy. And if you know history, you know that this was a big part of World War II, that there were these pockets of of resistance, of fighters who would, who, would, who would wage war against the enemy and ultimately were part of the victory um, in Europe. This is a picture of what we have in Christianity. We have God sending His Son, Jesus, to drop into this world, to par- sort of parachute into this world, to take on the war that we are in against sin, against the devil, against our flesh, and he, he begins to set up pockets of resistance. I want us this morning to think about the church, the local church, as a pocket of resistance against God's enemy. And that Jesus has come to give us a mission. He invites us to join into this resistance. And there's three ways that we're going to look at that this morning. The first is to work for the king. The second is to worship the king. And the third is to weep with the king. So, work for the king, worship the king, and weep with the king. The first thing we're going to look at is working for the king. Jesus, at this point in the story in the Gospel of Luke, is moving where? Toward Jerusalem. He's moving back toward Jerusalem for the very last time. He's heading to the cross. He knows that, but no one else gets it. He's been telling them, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die, and on the third day I'm going to rise from the dead. And they're like, okay, great, Jesus, great, that sounds good. Let's, uh, let's go defeat our enemies. They think the battle's going to be fought in a different way. And so Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem, and he comes through a city called Jericho. If you know anything about Jericho, you'll remember that that's where Jesus healed the blind beggar. That's where Jesus met Zacchaeus, that wee little man who climbed up in the tree, and Jesus said, I'm going to your house today. It was in Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. He passes through Jericho and he enters into a city called Bethany. 
Bethany was the home of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. The home of Mary and Martha, his beloved friends. This little small pocket of a church. I love what was said earlier, what Billy said earlier about how we're, we're, you're a beloved church. I mean, there are other pockets of resistance right around this area. And so Jesus comes into Bethany, and, then, and, and as he goes into Bethany, he's ascending up a hill. And that hill is called the Mount of Olives, right? And why do you think they called it the Mount of Olives? Anybody? Olive trees, right? <laughs> that, that's where they grew olive trees. It's a pretty clever name, uh, Mount of Olives. Um, they need a, a better name, I guess, Mount of Olives, something like, I don't know, Olive Place, something, I don't know. But he's going up the Mount of Olives, and, and, and as he's going, there's people traveling toward Jerusalem. Everyone's going to Jerusalem, not just Jesus and his disciples, but everyone. Why? Because it was the time of the Passover. So everyone is heading toward Jerusalem, and as Jesus is entering into the village, he's planning ahead, and he sends two of his disciples to go on over into Jerusalem, to cross down the other side of the, the Mount of Olives, to go across what's called the Kidron Valley, and to go into Jerusalem, and to find this place. He says, upon entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, hey, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And we assume that they said, okay, cool, right? Because Jesus had, had disciples in Jerusalem. And so as soon as these other disciples said, hey, the Lord has need of it, they said, well, sure. Take it to Jesus. They knew what was going on. Jesus had need of this cult. Now, Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew that he was going to enter in Jerusalem for the last time. And he was going to enter in on a cult, which was, which was a prophecy that the king, that the Messiah, would enter into Jerusalem riding the foal of a donkey, riding a cult. And so Jesus is setting up this this event, this day where he is going to victoriously ride into Jerusalem on a colt, proclaiming in the end. Now, if you and I rode into Charleston on a colt, people would just sort of stare and we would make the front page of the newspaper. Right? But Jesus was coming in specifically declaring that he is the Messiah, that he is the King. And so in that, in that plan that he's unhatching, Jesus sends two of his disciples and Jesus has already laid out the plan, right? He said, you will find a cult. Because he already knows the plan. He knows what he's doing. And, and he sends two of his disciples to walk in the path that he's already laid out for them to walk in. And isn't that what, isn't that what God calls us to? To go into the village and to find what God has already laid out for us to do? To go into North Charleston and to walk in what Jesus has already laid out? For you to do, to love your neighbor, to serve those who are in need, to do your job for God's glory, whatever that job is. Maybe it's being retired, maybe it's being a mom, maybe it's being a, an architect or a student. And Jesus says, go into the village and do what I've called you to do. Do your job for my glory. 
It's all a part of this plan. It's all a part of this resistance. He says, when they go into the village and they're asked, hey, why do you want my donkey? What are you supposed to say? The Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. What are things in your life, friends, that the Lord has need of? What are things, just ordinary things in your life, your, your finances, your family, your free time? What is it that the Lord has need of in your life? Jesus doesn't call them to do something incredible here. He calls them to do something very simple. Go get a donkey. And that's a lesson for us, isn't it? That the, thing, that the things that God calls us to do, the simple, ordinary, everyday things that God calls us to do, done for His kingdom, done for His glory, have a greater significance that we may not even see immediately. They, they thought Jesus was coming in as the conquering king, but no, He was coming in humble to go to His death. They didn't know that that's what God was doing. We don't know why God calls us to reach out across and love our neighbor. We don't know why God calls us to have that hard conversation with our children. The everyday things of life that God is using for His purposes, for His kingdom, that big picture. And He invites us to work for Him, to work for the King. The second thing that Jesus calls his disciples into here as a part of this resistance, as a part of this new kingdom, is to worship the king. Let's look back at verse 35. They brought it to Jesus, the donkey, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Why are they rejoicing? Why are they worshiping Jesus riding a colt? Because the promised Messiah has come. The conqueror of their enemies has arrived. See, the Jewish people were under bondage from the Roman Empire. They were essentially enslaved during this time. And, and for them, their enemy was not spiritual, it was physical. The, 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 they looked at the taxation, they looked at the way that they were treated, and the way that they were abused, and the way that they were imprisoned, and the way that their men were crucified. Anyone who dared stand up and say, this isn't right, would be crucified. The Jews were abused by the Romans. And so you can imagine the scene, Jesus, this this great teacher, this worker of miracles, this man who can even raise the dead is riding into Jerusalem. And it is going to be amazing. And so they're worshiping him. 
even though they don't get it all right. What they're doing is right, but they don't really get it all, you know? And, and that's true for us, too. So much of the time, we, we worship the Lord, and it's right. But we don't really know the fullness of who God is and what He's doing. We're always learning and always growing closer to who He truly is. They were crying out, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They desired peace. Jerusalem is the city of peace. Jerusalem, the city of peace. But they had no peace. And they wanted a mighty warrior to come and to and to gain this peace. They wanted oppression to cease. And they worshipped what, what they believed God was doing. They worshipped Him. And the Pharisees, who were the teachers of the law, they came and they were eavesdropping on this beautiful event that was happening. And they said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? They didn't like it because they didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. The people did, but the Pharisees didn't recognize. Jesus answered and he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The scripture says that they were coming down the Mount of Olives. And as you're coming down the Mount of Olives, I've never been to Israel, but I'm told, as you're coming down the Mount of Olives, you can look across and you can see the city. You can see Jerusalem rising before you. And in that day, you could see the temple. And the temple was made out of these massive stones. And I think Jesus was not just talking about generic rocks, but he was talking about the stones of that temple, the stones that in the next passage he'll say will be broken down. The very meeting place where God meets with his people those stones will cry out if these people don't. God is meeting with His people, Jesus was saying, right now. And that's why the people are worshiping. That's why it's good. We were made to worship. There's a reason it's called March Madness. Right? Because we love sports. We love to, to follow. We love the draft. Because... We're created to bring honor to something, to someone. And so these people, as they, as they got a glimpse of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, they rejoiced. It wasn't what they thought it was going to be, but they were doing what they were created to do. Their hearts were worshiping the lover of our souls, the king who is worthy of all praise. And so, for us, we're called to worship the King. We're called to come and gather in corporate worship, but we're called to worship outside, too, through the ordinary things of life, in our homes, in our families, privately, to worship, to give honor and praise to the King. But some will try to silence your praise. Some will try to make you be quiet. Like the Pharisees said, Jesus, silence your disciples. Make them stop. 
What are, what are some things that could silence our praise? Let me give you just two brief things. One, pride. Pride. When we, when we think that we are good, when we think that we are worthy, we feel good about ourselves. We're self-righteous, like the Pharisees. Then we don't have room to praise God because we're, we're praising ourselves. The pride can get in the way of our worship. It can silence our praise. And on the flip side, shame can silence our praise. When you feel like you are not worthy, when you feel like you are the pits, when you feel like a bad person, when you feel like no one loves you, when you feel like you are abandoned, then you don't want to praise because you feel like you're not even worthy to talk to God. And isn't it amazing how the gospel of Jesus breaks through both of those? It breaks through pride. And it says you are a sinner in need of grace. And, and, and you need to be broken. And humbled. Just like this crowd of people would be in a few days. They would be humbled. When Jesus it became clear that Jesus was, was not coming as a conquering king. But as a suffering servant. It would be clear to them that. That they had nothing. And at the end of the day when he rose from the dead. They could rejoice that. Even in our pride he still loved us. To the very end. Peter. Think of Peter. Who was so full of pride. He would stand with Jesus and he fell flat on his face. And Jesus lovingly restored him after the resurrection. What about our shame? How it keeps us from. Coming to him, it keeps us it keeps us groveling, it keeps us disappointed in ourselves. It, it keeps us from worshiping him. Why? Because we haven't grasped that his love for us is in spite of all of our failings. He doesn't love you because you've done so great. He loves you because he loves you. He's, he's chosen you before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. And He sent His Son, Jesus, to, to live for you so that when you put your faith in Him, He gives you all of His goodness and all of His love. All of His grace is poured out in your life and now you don't have to be ashamed anymore. But you can be filled with God's grace and with His love and with Christ's own righteousness. And so you can worship him. You can come to him and say, all I have is Christ, as we sing. Don't be silenced like the Pharisees tried to silence the crowd of worshipers through pride or through shame. But believe the gospel. Believe the good news of Jesus and worship the king. We're called to work for the king to worship the king, and to weep with the king. Let's look at verse 41. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, 
surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. As Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives and he can see through the crowd of rejoicing, the crowd of worshipers, and he can see Jerusalem set before him. He can see the temple where God graciously meets with his people through the shedding of blood. That temple where he knows he will be heading to fulfill the, great, the greatest sacrifice for sin, the only sacrifice for sin. And he wept over it. He just began to cry. Jesus knows that the people, even some of these very people around him, will reject him as the Messiah. He knows that they don't really know what will make for peace. They think that strength will make for peace, but no. It will be brokenness. It will be weakness. It will be sacrifice that will make for peace. Jesus wasn't the first king to weep going up or down the Mount of Olives. When King David was rejected as king some thousand years before this, and his son Absalom set up a mutiny against his kingship, David had to flee Jerusalem. And in 2 Samuel chapter 15, we read about King David, who was rejected as king, going to the Mount of Olives. And he goes, as he goes up the Mount of Olives, he's, he's weeping. He's weeping because the people rejected him as their king. And here's Jesus facing the same rejection, weeping, just as his ancestor David had done those many years before. They didn't know the things that would make for peace. Have you ever had a loved one, maybe a family member or a friend, who was on a destructive path? And you could see where they were going. You could see this is not going to end well. This relationship is not going to end well. This habit is not going to end well. And you try to tell them, but they just won't hear. That's kind of how Jesus was feeling here. He was telling them the good news. He had told them what he was going to do, but no one was listening. They were on a destructive path. And so he wept. He wept for that, and he wept for what would happen to Jerusalem. Forty, fast forward 40 years into the future, in A.D. 70, and Jerusalem would truly be torn down. The days will come, Jesus said, when your enemies will set up a barricade against you. The enemies, the Roman enemies, would truly set up a barricade against Jerusalem and destroy it. That they, they truly would, 40 years into the future, tear down every stone of that temple. Destroy the place where God met with his people. The historian Josephus wrote about how terrible it was during that siege that lasted years. The Romans surrounded Jerusalem with three rings of embankments. They cut off their supplies. So the people began to hunger. They began to thirst. They began to starve. 
Josephus, the historian, writes about fathers who in their misery would put their own wives and children to death because things got so bad in Jerusalem during that time. And so Jesus, seeing that future, seeing the result of that rejection, weeps. He weeps over what would happen. He weeps over God's judgment that would fall upon many. When we think about how sin affects our lives, we think about how it affects our neighbors, we should weep with the king. Weep and pray and ask for the Lord's deliverance. Lord, do something. Open their eyes. Through tear-filled eyes, we should pray and seeking God's redemption and His kingdom to come to this community. To come into our own lives and to come into the lives of our neighbors around us. When we think about the way that sin affects not just individuals, but but our entire society, we should weep with corruption and failing schools and broken families and greedy businesses and sexual abuse and child neglect and injustice and homelessness and abortion and racism and sexual immorality and disobedience to parents, pornography, the way that we shop to fill a void, the way that we overeat, the way that we're obsessed with eating right and fitness and all the ways that we, that we seek to build up our own kingdom and the way that sin just destroys everything. We should weep. We should weep with Jesus. Would that we had known what would make for peace. What would really make for peace? Oh man, he, Jesus wants us to remember the thing that will make for peace. And it is his own life, his own death, and his own resurrection. That is the thing that will make for peace. Nothing else but Jesus will make for peace. We need to weep and pray and, and, and work for the king and getting that message out to our community, to our neighbors, because people are dying They're dying and they're headed toward destruction. And we have the gospel to share with them. Lord, help us to do that. There's a story about a mountain climber who was out um, going up this, this, this incline. And as he was going up, he slipped and began falling. And he, he only had a few... Uh, of his ropes attached to the cliff. And so one of them broke, and he's falling, and he reaches, and he's grabbing for anything he can, and he finally grabs a hold of the scraggly bush. <laughs> and he's clinging for dear life, and he looks down to a 900,000-foot a drop below. And he screams up toward the sky. Is there anyone up there who can help me? Is there anyone up there? Silence. Help! Is there anyone up there who can help me? Then he hears a voice. And the voice says, yes, I can help you. But you've got to trust me. Let go of the bush. He looks up. 
He looks down. And he says, is there anyone else up there who can help me? How hard is it for us to let go of that scraggly bush that we're holding on to for our salvation, for our meaning and purpose in life? Being a good mom or dad, making good grades, being beautiful, being an achiever at work. What are you holding on to that gives you life, that gives you meaning? And Jesus says, I've done it. I've done it. I've done it all. And I'm offering you my life for yours. But you've got to let go of that scraggly bush. Jesus calls us to let go. And to fall into his embrace. To fall into his arms. And he, and he offers it to us freely, y'all. Freely. We don't have to earn it or deserve it. He just gives us the thing that makes for peace. And it's his grace. And that is the message of the resistance. That is the word that should go out in and through each of us. Into our neighborhoods. Into our places of work. And into North Charleston. And even beyond into the world. Join the resistance. Work for the king. Worship the king. And weep with the king. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to come into this world to rescue us. Because we are so entrapped and oppressed by sin. We are so weary of of the struggle against the things that continue to defeat us. And we thank you for sending Jesus to bring our rescue, to bring our redemption. And Lord, I pray for each person here today that you will give us faith to believe, to let go of what what we think gives us life. And to embrace you, the the only giver of life. The king of all kings who comes humbly riding on a colt to give his life in love for us. Lord, give us faith to believe. And give us the boldness and the confidence in you to go and live this out in the world and the places where you've called us to be. Where you've set it out in front of us. Lord, help us to go and to be your witnesses. Be glorified, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, amen. I'm going to invite uh, the uh, elders and servers who are coming up to assist to come forward. Jesus, uh, when he entered into Jerusalem, one of the first things he did, or one of the last things he did actually that week, was to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. The Passover was, um, if you remember way back in the Exodus, it was a time when, when God was bringing his judgment on Egypt. And, and, and so that the people of God would not be swept up in the judgment, that their oldest sons would not also be killed, God gave them a way out. 
Do you remember what it was? They were to sacrifice the, the Passover lamb and to spread the blood of the lamb over the door frame and over the post of the house and to come inside and to eat and to celebrate God's salvation. And so in, in that celebration, Jesus with his disciples, he instituted, he, he gave us this meal so that we might remember him as the Lamb of God, the ultimate Lamb of God, the true Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world for all who believe in his name. And so on that night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Jesus took a cup. And, and after supper, and he poured it out, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. My blood. Not the Lamb's blood, but my blood, which is given uh, for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink of it, all of you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup in remembrance of me, you proclaim my death until I return again. And so today, we get to celebrate. We get to join into that, that uh, ages-long feast where God meets with his people and, 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 and by faith the Holy Spirit comes and, and, and equips us and strengthens us for the task that he's given to us to be his witnesses. Man, we can't do that on our own. We need his strength. And this meal, as small as that bread is and that little thimble of juice, it strengthens us spiritually. And so if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're here today with us, um, this is not the table of Two Rivers Church or of the Presbyterian Church, this is the table of Jesus Christ. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are welcome to come and to celebrate his death until he comes again. If you're not a believer, if you're not sure what you believe about God or about this good news, this gospel, and we invite you to pray. Take, take the time, just pray to the Lord. Say, I don't know if you're real, Lord, but maybe reveal something to me about yourself today. Take a little step toward the Lord. You're here today, so we invite you to reach out to him, because he's already reaching out to you. He's already doing something. We invite you to do that as we celebrate. Can we pray? Father, we thank you for this meal. Thank you for the, the bread and the wine. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life. Thank you for becoming sin, so that in you we might become the righteousness of God. What a joy. What a privilege. Meet with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.